Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, What more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder... Some cases drag on for decades, and others see quick and efficient action that leads straight to a guilty party. On December 17, 2010, a woman disappeared from her home. It would take less than a year for a man to be held accountable for her murder in a case that saw police efficiency and media sabotage. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Joanna Claire Yates was born on April 19, 1985 in Hampshire, England. After a life of private education, Joanna studied for her A-levels at Peter Simmons College and graduated with a degree in landscape architecture from Riddle College. Receiving her postgraduate diploma from the University of Gloucestershire, in December of 2008, she met 25-year-old architect Greg Reardon, and by 2009, the couple were living together and settled in Bristol. Relocating to work at the Building Design Partnership, the pair lived in the Clifton suburb in an apartment on 44 Kinnage Road, which at one point was a large home but was now divided into several smaller flats. It was here that on December 17, 2010, after a night out with colleagues, Joanna Claire Yates disappeared without a trace. At approximately 8 p.m. on December 19th, Greg came home from a weekend visit to Sheffield to find their apartment empty. Trying to contact his girlfriend by phone and text, Greg noticed he could hear the faint sounds of a phone ringing and found that Joanna's cell phone was still in the pocket of her coat. With her phone, keys, and purse still in the house and their cat appearing neglected, Greg feared the worst and called local police to file a missing persons report. Determining that she left her friends at the Bristol Ram Pub at around 8 p.m. on December 17th, and began a 30-minute walk home, police found out that, just before saying her goodbyes, 
Joanna told her colleagues that she was not looking forward to spending the weekend alone. That it was the first time she was alone in the apartment without Greg, but that she planned on spending the time baking in preparation for an upcoming party they were throwing and getting some Christmas shopping done. Checking CCTV footage along her route home, police found tapes showing Joanna leaving a supermarket at 8.10 p.m. without making a purchase. And according to phone records, she made a call to her best friend, Rebecca Scott, at 8.30 p.m. to arrange a meetup on Christmas Eve. The last known footage of Joanna Yates showed her buying a pizza from a Tesco Express at 8.40 p.m. and buying two small bottles of cider at a nearby bargain booze. Police found no sign of the pizza or its packaging back at the apartment, but both bottles were found and one was partially consumed. There were no signs of forced entry or a struggle, leading many to believe that she might have known her abductor. Desperate to find her, Greg, with the help of Joanna's friends and loved ones, set up a website to update everyone about the case. And on December 21st, her parents and Greg made a public appeal for her safe return at a police press conference. In another press conference held December 23rd by Sky News and BBC News, Joanna's father David stated, I think she was abducted after getting home to her flat. I have no idea of the circumstances of the abduction because of what was left behind. I feel sure she would not have gone out by herself, leaving all these things behind, and she was taken away somewhere. On December 25th, 2010, on what should have been a day of merriment, officials found Joanna Yates's body in Fayland, North Somerset. Her body was fully clothed and found in the snow by a couple walking their dog. She was about three miles away from home, and her cause of death, though delayed due to the frozen conditions, was strangulation. A postmortem indicated that she likely died, quote, several days before being discovered, and found that she did not eat the pizza that she was seen buying on CCTV footage. With no signs of sexual assault, a full investigation into her murder began, and, later called Operation Braid, consisted of 80 detectives and civilian staff under the direction of Detective Chief Inspector Phil Jones. Becoming one of the largest police operations in the Avon and Somerset constabulary history, Inspector Jones made a public plea for anyone who had information to come forward, especially those who lived in the vicinity of where her body was found. He also stated that the investigation was seeking the driver of a, quote, light-colored 4x4 vehicle who they wanted to question as the case dominated all news coverage throughout the UK. Thousands of calls came in and, exhausting each and every lead, examining over 100 hours of surveillance footage and sifting through over 645,000 pounds of trash seized from the area around her apartment, police continued to come up empty-handed. With Crime Stoppers offering a £10,000 reward and The Sun offering an additional £50,000, authorities in the area advised those nearby to secure their homes and warned women not to walk alone at night. Digging further and further into the case, it wasn't long before the detectives found, quote, striking similarities between Joanna's murder and that of 24-year-old Melanie Hall back in 1974. Noting their similar ages and appearance, and that they disappeared while returning home from a gathering with friends, the possibility of a connection was later downplayed by the investigators. Gathering more footage, this time from Clifton Suspension Bridge, 
The quality was later deemed too poor to distinguish any individuals or license plate numbers. And searching her computer and mobile phone, Greg Reardon was ruled out as a suspect and instead treated as a witness. Then came the woman who claimed that she, while attending a party at a neighboring home, heard two loud screams at around 9 p.m. coming from the direction of Joanna's flat. Another neighbor, living behind the apartment, claimed he heard a woman's voice screaming, help me, although he could not recall the exact time, and officers trying to exhaust all of the options, removed the front door of Joanna and Greg's apartment in order to check for clothing fibers or DNA evidence. Then, finally, there was a break in the case. On December 30th, 2010, Christopher Jeffries, Joanna and Greg's landlord who lived in the same building, was arrested on suspicion of her murder. Taken to the local police station for questioning, while forensics swept his flat, they were allowed to hold him for the next 96 hours, but just two days later, released him on bail. He retained legal services, and while he did so, senior officers from the investigation began asking for help from the National Policing Improvement Agency. On January 4th, 2011, after Christopher's bail, but before his eventual release, a clinical forensic psychologist who had a history as a criminal profiler in other high-profile cases joined the investigation in hopes of narrowing down the long list of potential suspects. The very next day, it was announced that one of Joanna's socks was missing from both where her body was found and from her home. And shortly thereafter, a national advertising campaign to appeal for witnesses was launched via Facebook. On January 9th, Bristol East MP Carrie McCarthy expressed her support for the idea of public DNA screening if the police found it useful after DNA was found on Joanna's body that they hoped might lead them to a potential profile of their killer. While detectives tracked down the movements of several hundred registered sex offenders living within their jurisdiction, a reconstruction of the case was filmed with the intention of broadcasting it on the BBC program Crime Watch. Within 24 hours of news coverage about the production, over 300 individuals contacted the police and a breakthrough came that led to a new theory that Joanna's body might have been transported to her final dumping ground in a large holdall or suitcase. On January 20th, 2011, before the Crime Watch segment could even be aired, 32-year-old architectural engineer Vincent Sabak was arrested in connection to Joanna's murder. Other than the fact that he lived with his girlfriend in the flat next to Joanna and Greg, the police declined providing any more information on their latest suspect due to concerns over the controversial media coverage of Christopher Jeffrey's arrest. We do know that the arrest was the result of an anonymous tip from a female caller and that the road where the apartment building was was now closed by police and scaffolding was constructed around the exterior. Sealing his flat, investigators also searched the nearby townhouse of one of Vincent's friends about a mile away after finding out that he might have been staying there within the time frame around the murder. Vincent Tabak had previously been ruled out as a suspect during the early stages of the investigation, but whatever was said in that anonymous call was enough to lead to an arrest and to DNA testing. The BBC reenactment was canceled, and the DNA specialist tasked with the job found that Although the sample found on Joanna Yates's body did match that of Vincent Tabak, they were not sufficient enough quality to be evaluated. So a method known as DNA Sense 
which enhances usable samples through purification and concentration, was deployed and finding the probability of the sample not being a match to Vincent less than one in a billion, he was questioned and officially charged on January 22nd, 2011. So who was Vincent DeBach and how was he connected to Joanna Yates? Vincent, born on February 10th, 1978, was a Dutch man who lived and worked in the UK since 2007. Described by a childhood neighbor as intelligent, introverted loner, Vincent studied at Eindhoven University of Technology beginning in 1996, graduated with an MSc in architecture, building, and planning in 2003, and began his PhD shortly after and had his thesis paper published in 2008. Leaving the university in 2007, Vincent moved to the UK after taking a job at the headquarters of Burrow Hapold, an engineering consultancy firm, and worked as a people flow analyst. Settling in Bath, he met a woman through the Guardian's online dating website, and she became his first serious girlfriend. They moved into the flat on Canide Road in June of 2009, and though Joanna Yates and Greg Reardon moved in the neighboring unit late in 2010, she and Vincent wouldn't cross paths, allegedly, until December 17, 2010. In the months before Joanna's murder, Vincent used his computer to find escort agencies and contact several sex workers by phone in addition to viewing violent internet pornography that depicted women being controlled by men, often bound and gagged, and being held by the neck and choked. Searching his computer, police found an image of a woman with her pink top pulled up to expose her bra and breasts. When Joanna was discovered, she was wearing a similarly arranged pink top. When initially considered a suspect, Vincent attempted to cast suspicion onto Christopher Jeffries. Calling the Avon and Somerset police shortly after spending New Year's with relatives in the Netherlands, he told officers that Christopher had been using his car the night of December 17th. Sending an officer to speak with him, they met at an airport where, though Vincent elaborated on his story, the officer grew suspicious of his interest in the forensic work that was being carried out and because his stories were not really lining up. After a brief court appearance on January 24th, Vincent was remanded in custody and, legally represented by Paul Cook, failed to request bail during the hearing the following day. Moved to a different prison for his safety and placed under suicide watch, his family and friends began raising funds to support his defense. Maintaining his innocence and claiming the DNA evidence against him was fabricated by corrupt officials, things changed when, on February 8, 2011, he told Peter Brotherton, the prison chaplain, that he killed Joanna Yates and intended on pleading guilty. On March 4, 2011, Christopher Jeffries was officially released from bail and removed from the suspect list. He subsequently won an undisclosed amount in damages for defamatory news articles published following his arrest and received an apology from the Avon and Somerset police for any distress caused by their investigation. On May 5, 2011, Vincent Tabak pleaded guilty to manslaughter, but still, despite his confession, denied murdering her. His plea was rejected by the Crown Prosecution Service, and he appeared in person at a pretrial on September 20th. His official trial began on October 4th, again pleading guilty to manslaughter but denying murder, and the prosecution in the case argued that, within minutes of her arrival home that night, Vincent entered Joanna's home and strangled her to death. 
Using his height and build, he overpowered the smaller woman. He pinned her to the floor by her wrists with her suffering from 43 separate injuries to her head, neck, torso, and arms during the struggle. And after a lengthy, slow, and painful fight, he strangled Joanna to death. Arguing that the pornography found on his computer should be presented to the jury, the prosecution claimed, quote, it might shed a light on the need to hold a woman for long enough and the need to squeeze hard enough to take her life. It was not included, however, after the judge decided that it did not prove the murder was premeditated and therefore could not be submitted to the jury. Presenting DNA, fibers, and his statements while trying to implicate a completely innocent Christopher Jeffries, the prosecution also pointed out that, after Joanna's murder, Vincent made internet searches that included questions about the length of time it would take for a body to decompose and the dates that garbage collections were done in the Clifton area. Defending himself on the stand, Vincent claimed that the killing was not sexually motivated and said that he killed her while trying to silence her. She started screaming when he entered the apartment and tried to kiss her. He said she made some, quote, flirty comment and invited him over for a drink. But when she started to freak out, he held his hand over her mouth and around her neck to try and muffle the sounds. He denied the suggestion of a struggle and claimed that he held her with only minimal force for, quote, about 20 seconds. He said he was in a state of panic and that the entire thing was a spur-of-the-moment decision, not a premeditated attack. After two days of deliberation, on October 28, 2011, a jury found Vincent Tabak guilty of murdering Joanna Yates. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 20 years, and when it emerged that there were pornographic images of children found on his computer after the trial, in 2015, he was given an additional 10 months after pleading guilty to possessing over 100 indecent images of children. After a media storm that saw an innocent man completely vilified and a number of legal proceedings against several news sources, a parliamentary debate took place in which Anna Saubry, the conservative MP for Bruxtow, argued, quote, What we saw in Bristol was, in effect, a feeding frenzy and vilification. Much of the coverage was not only completely irrelevant, but there was a homophobic tone to it, which I found deeply offensive. The slurs on the man were out of order. Her proposal for a bill that would impose a six-month sentence for any journalist who names an uncharged suspect was later withdrawn due to opposition. Christopher Jeffrey's life was, like those of Jennifer's friends and family, irrevocably changed by the actions of Vincent Tabak. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to a terrible thing happened on December 18th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.